What can a squadron of airplanes that landed and were abandoned in Greenland in World War II but found and restored 50 years later tell us about the Ice Age? The Lost Squadron, this week on Creation Magazine Live. This is the audio podcast version of our TV show. Both of them are produced by Creation Ministries International. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. My name is Richard Fangrad. And I'm Calvin Smith. Now, this week on Creation Magazine Live, our topic is, is really about the Ice Age and the Bible, and mm. we'll get there later. We want to begin with the amazing account of the Lost Squadron, as it has came, as, as it's uh, come to be known. Yeah, this story helps to demonstrate that the biblical history is far superior explanation for the uh, example, for example, the, the massive buildup of ice on Greenland, which is in uh, some areas more than 10,000 feet thick. So let's begin with the account of the Lost Squadron. We'll read portions of an article from a June 1997 article issue of Creation Magazine, um, and then uh, we'll go from there. From a secret U.S. Army base, air base in Greenland, six P-38 Lightning fighter planes and two gigantic B-17 Flying Fortress bombers rose into the early dawn. The date was the 15th of July, 1942, and they were headed for a British airfield to join the war against Hitler. Now, the, the P-38 Lightning was one of the deadliest planes to come out of World War II. It was powered by twin Allison V-12 engines. It had one 20-millimeter uh, cannon and four caliber machine guns in its nose, and it was uh, operational from 1941 to 49. The nickname given to it by German pilots because of its double tail was Der Gebelschwanz Teufel, which means the forked-tongued devil. Mm, I remember, remember having a model of one, and I yeah. thought it was a cool airplane. Anyway, <laughs> the article continues. Heading east over the polar ice cap, they ran into a massive blizzard. Flying blind, they heard that their their first planned refueling stop in Iceland was socked in, forcing them to return to their home base. As they approached this, however, critically low on fuel, they found that it, too, was closed. Realizing that their only hope was to crash land on the icy wastes of Greenland's east coast, they desperately searched till they found a break in the cloud cover. The nose wheel of the first plane to land hit a crevice which caused it to flip, and you can see a picture of that actual plane right here. Uh, fortunately, the impact on the canopy of the 8-ton P-38 was cushioned by snow, and the pilot's injuries were minor. After they saw this, the rest of the squadron came in with their wheels up for belly landings. The planes were only lightly damaged, and all of the crewmen were rescued unharmed by dog sled about nine days later. However, the planes had to be abandoned where they had slithered to a stop. It continues, in the years to follow, a few people occasionally recalled the legendary uh, Lost Squadron of 1942, but it was only in 1980 that anyone thought of a salvage mission. U.S. airplane uh, dealer Patrick Epps told his friend, architect Richard Taylor, that the planes would be like new. All we have to do is shovel the snow off the wings, fill them with gas, crank them up, and fly them off into the sunset. Nothing to it. Okay. Now, the P-38s are highly prized uh, collector's items. Only five were believed to still be flying at the time that the, 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 uh, the Lost Squadron was salvaged. Uh, the, art the article continues, it took, uh, it took the two of them many years, much money, and several failed expeditions before the first real clue came. Using a sophisticated form of radar with the help of an Icelandic geophysicist, they located eight large shapes beneath the ice in 1988. As a small makeshift steam probe began to melt a hole in the ice, expedition members watched dumbstruck as more and more extensions were added to the hose, some 75 meters or 250 feet before reaching the first airplane. 
Okay, now here's a picture of what they call the gopher that melted the 250 deep, four foot diameter hole straight down through the ice to reach the aircraft. Hot water is pumped through the copper tubing you see there at the bottom end, and that's what melts the ice. Right, and the article continues. None of the discoverers thought that the planes could possibly be buried under more than a light cover of snow and ice. And why would they? After all, the impression the general public has is that the buildup of glacial ice takes very long time periods, thousands of years for just a few meters. Well, this story uh, vividly uh, shows uh, how the impression that you know this buildup of snow takes it takes a long time that's just uh, the way people think about it because of what they've been taught by evolutionary uh, teaching right? exactly yeah uh, there are documentaries about these expeditions to retrieve and ultimately restore these airplanes mm -hmm. on YouTube you can you can watch them yep. uh, the team frequently encounters snowstorms one part of the documentary shows them digging out of their tents after after just one of these snowstorms one night and the snow is six feet high at the top of the doors they're, they're digging out six feet of snow fell in in in, in one night right Man, amazing uh, the the published figures of average ice accumulated uh, accumulation rates are quite a bit lower than one and a half meters per year or about five feet per year that 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 you know that happened here but not yeah. nearly as as uh, low as the salvagers actually thought yes uh, it shows how much this millions of years idea has permeated into the general public uh, and and the point of the article and our show today is to show the error of this common preconception. Everywhere we look, on TV and books, uh, through, through the education system and popular movies, we see the idea that the world must be millions of years old because we've been told certain things like the buildup of the Greenland ice sheet happened very slowly. Right, so when someone meet, uh, reads the Bible and, and makes the simple deduction that God created recently yeah. and then, you know, go, go on to tell others about it, people kind of look at you like you got a you know, couple gears short of a cuckoo clock here, like you really believe the earth's young. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, then what often happens uh, with, with Christians is they begin to doubt what God's Word says. And let's face it, the deduction that God created recently in six real days is what you get by simply drawing the meaning from the text and right. carefully considering the context, interpreting scripture with scripture, applying all of the, the rules of hermeneutics and so on. You get that conclusion. Yeah. Well, here's the problem. If you're then swayed uh, by, by the very popular notion that the universe is much older than the, what the biblical text allows, yeah. even though that's what the text plainly says, then it causes people to doubt their ability to understand Scripture. If we can't really trust what the text plainly says, then there's little hope of being able to really, you know, really understand what God's Word actually says, right? Right. Uh, even worse, if we allow modern philosophies like the idea that the earth is billions of years old to overrule the biblical text, well then we're just lost. Absolutely. And, you know, ice cores from Greenland have been used for dating uh, based on the belief that layers containing varying isotope ratios were laid down, uh, somewhat like the, the rings of a tree, over many tens of thousands of years. The account of the Lost Squadron provides us with an actual rate yes. of ice accumulation on Greenland, not a belief or a theory about how fast the ice might occur, might accumulate, but an actual measurement we can take. Right, yeah. And the story isn't over. Uh, they returned in 1990, and the first plane that the gopher touched was one of the big B-17s. The article goes on to describe what took place. A worker lowered down the shaft, then used a hot water hose to make a cavern around the plane. To their disappointment, the huge bomber was crushed and mangled beyond worthwhile salvage. Dejected, the pair returned home. However, 
Only a month later, they realized that the more solidly built P-38s would have had a much better chance of having survived the ice weight. In May 1992, they returned with fresh financing from investors in a high-precision effort. True to expectations, the P-38 they located seemed in superb condition. After many weeks of intense effort, the wings and fuselage were brought to the surface through a large opening made by using the gopher to sink four more holes side by side, and the pieces were helicoptered to a Greenland port and then sea freighted to the U.S. for final restoration. This turned out to be a little more difficult than imagined, as the plane had actually been more damaged by the crushing weight than met the eye. However, when operational again, it will be using around 80% of its original parts. Interesting, the, the, the planes under the ice were in exactly the same pattern in which they had landed, except they had been moved by glacial flow three miles from their original location. Now, after this article appeared in Creation Magazine, the planes were restored, and in mid-2003, one of the P-38s, which was named Glacier Girl, very appropriately, flew again. That's right, and Glacier Girl's story is a powerful reminder to us that, that thick layers of ice don't have to take immense time spans to form. That's right. Rather, this slow and gradual belief of how things like this uh, you know, form is so ingrained in our society today that it, becomes as a, it, it comes as a shock to people when they, they read stories like that of Glacier Girl and, and see these documentaries and so on. And this is exactly what happened happened with the, the salvage team who expected the planes to be under a thin sheet of snow and ice. Right, yeah. Uh, this belief has nothing to do with the actual evidence, but was an assumption made about the past used to interpret evidence in the present. However, Glacier Girl is only the, the, the tip of the iceberg, we could say, of evidence that contradicts this pervasive slow and gradual belief. To discover a little more evidence for recent creation, see our Young Age of the Earth and Universe article, or the Q&A page at creation.com slash young. Evolutionists and other long agers often say that the present is the key to the past. Right. Now we realize that the um, faulty idea is finally being rejected by more and more evolutionists, but it's still part of the mindset in most cases. Right. Now let's apply that slogan, the present is the key to the past, to the 3,000 meter long ice core brought up by the Joint European-Greenland Ice Core Project, or GRIP. In, in Greenland, that was in, in, in 1990 to 92, they worked on that. The average rate of ice buildup between the time the Lost Squadron left their aircraft in 1942 and the time they were discovered in 92 works out to be about one and a half meters per year, right. five feet. So at that rate, it would uh, take only 2,000 years of accumulation to deposit uh, the GRIP Research uh, Project's ice core. Yeah. So beginning about the time that Jesus was on the Earth is all that's needed to get the 3,000 meters or over 10,000 feet of ice currently on Greenland. That's right, yeah. Easy to fit into, uh, into the, the time frame that we have to work with. Right. In reality, it likely started long before that time. The Ice Age that immediately followed the flood could have built up a, the, the great majority, and very likely did build up the great majority, of the Greenland ice sheet during the 700 years or so that it lasted right after the flood. Yeah, higher precipitation and snowfall uh, for a few centuries after the flood is the natural result of the, of the global flood. So, so how does the flood trigger the Ice Age? Well, creationists believe that there was originally one continent that broke apart during the flood. There's ample evidence that the continents moved apart, and the only place in biblical history that this fits, of course, is during the flood. During the flood, yeah. All that tectonic activity would generate a lot of heat in the oceans. Warm oceans lead to more evaporation. 
when that moisture gets over the continents, especially in higher latitudes, like further north and further south, like Greenland, it's going to fall as snow. The summers would be cooler because of the massive amount of volcanic activity that happened during the flood, and the volcanoes would put a lot of dust into the atmosphere, shielding out the sun's energy, making the continents cooler, and presto, instant ice age. Yeah, uh, we've done uh, whole shows on both the ice age and plate tectonics before. If you missed the broadcast, well, they, they were broadcast years ago, but uh, all of our past shows, over 140 episodes now, are free to watch in the media center on our website, creation.com. Mm -hmm. The Ice Age episode that was way back in season two, uh, episode 24, and here's the link here, and the episode on continental drift was episode seven of that same season, season two. Right. So the flood was over 4,000 years ago. Yeah. And that allows plenty of time for the existing amounts of ice to have built up even under today's generally non-catastrophic conditions. Right. Yeah. As usual, it's not the facts which speak against the flood account of a recent creation, or, or the, the, the biblical account of a recent creation of a yeah. global flood, rather, <laughs> but the mindset of our culture. Millions of years are casually tossed around everywhere so often that we unconsciously perceive all natural changes as being slow changes and taking long time spans. That's right. That's why many are amazed to hear of facts like hundreds of feet of layered sedimentary rock built up in months after the Mount St. Helens eruption on the 18th of May in 1980, or when hearing of opal formed in months, or, or coal from simple heating of wood in mere months. Yeah, or about the, the flag, tent, and sled left by the South Pole uh, left at the South Pole by the Antarctic explorer Amundsen in 911, in, uh, 1911 rather. Uh, now under, it, it's buried under more than 40 feet of ice, or, or, or what we've been talking about today. The, the deeply buried lost squadron. These yeah. are amazing little stories that come up that speak against this millions of years notion. That's right. It's ironic to note that the, um, the basis on which some evolutionists have critiqued CMI is use of the uh, planes and ice story. They say things like that, well, we know from actual measurements that snow and ice builds up fast in that part of Greenland yeah. to account for the buildup of that much ice in over only 50 years. Yeah. Well, they, they, they seem to somehow be implying that this somehow undermines the creationist use of this evidence. That's precisely what the point is that we're making. Right. Uh, uh, we can observe it. The measured, <laughs> observed rate of ice buildup confirms that it could happen quickly. What they need to do is show that their belief that it builds up slowly yeah. elsewhere in Greenland has sufficient support to overthrow the measured data that it builds up quickly. That's what they need yeah, to do. Yeah, what, what a spin doctor position that is. The bottom line is many people today believe that it must take hundreds of thousands of years to build up the huge ice sheets that exist today. But if planes can be buried under that much solid ice in 50 years, mm -hmm. even at today's rates of deposition, not even taking into account the increased precipitation from a warmer waters after the flood, for example, then clearly there is ample time to lay down the ice sheets uh, we see today within the biblical time frame of history. So when we start from the, the Word of God, you know, w with history, then Glacier Girl's story actually makes sense. It does. Uh, realizing that the story of Glacier Girl doesn't fit well with the millions of years scenario, some people have suggested that maybe the planes sunk through the ice. Okay. Okay. Well yeah, we should consider that. Some of you might remember the common school experiment where you get a wire tensioned with weights and how it sinks through a block of ice. But the wire sinks through the ice in the experiment only if it's done at room temperature. Do the same experiment with the, uh, with the whole thing in a freezer, uh, which would actually mimic the, the, the situations with the planes. They're all in the big freezer, yeah. and, and it won't work. Yeah, the common explanation for the, 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 this wire and ice experiment 
is that the pressure of the wire melts the ice, but that's, that's wrong. Such a little device doesn't generate enough pressure to melt ice. A heat transferred from the air in the room to the, to the metallic wire, which is an efficient conductor of heat, melts the ice, which is a poor heat conductor to allow the wire to cut through the ice. Yeah. You know, a supporter of Creation Ministries International from the UK um, actually gave another reason why the plane sank through the ice explanation really doesn't fit the data. And his response was printed in March 1998 uh, issue, um, and he said this. It's true that the pressures involved would not cause the planes to descend through the ice, but there's a simpler and more visual way to determine whether this has happened or not. To attain forward directional stability, aircraft must have their center of mass ahead of what is termed their aerodynamic center. The center of mass is moved forwards by sitting engines and other heavy uh, elements towards the front and adding control surfaces such as tail fins whose surface area pulls the aerodynamic center to the rear. A simpler equivalent is the arrow weight in the nose, flights at the rear, which attains forward directional stability by the same means. The consequence is that, barring control mechanisms acting, an aero or aircraft will pitch forward and fall nose down when allowed to fall freely through a medium, whether air, water, or ice. So if the aircraft had indeed moved through the ice, they would all have been found in the same nose-down position they were not. Yeah, great. So the planes could not have sunk through the ice. They were buried by the accumulation of snow, which then becomes ice as it's compacted. Right. Now, Mike Ord, he's a retired meteorologist who's done a lot of work to model the post-flood ice age. Yeah. And since weather and climate is his area of expertise, he's actually well-suited to comment on the effects that a global flood would have, uh, would have on climate, of course. Yeah. Now, he wrote an article that was in the October 2013 issue of Creation Magazine titled, are the Greenland, uh, Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets old? Now, in that article, he made a short comment that puts the whole creation evolution issue and the age of the Earth debate in the right context. He said this, Ice cores are considered strong evidence against the biblical time scale of around 6,000 years. Some professing Christians have used ice cores as the ultimate proof that Noah's flood was not global. Is this all true? No, it is not. A little checking of the data and their interpretations reveals this. Yeah. Here's the part that puts it in context. We need to apply 1 Thessalonians 5.21, which is, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. This is my theme verse for research, Mike said. I'm holding fast to the Bible as God's accurate communication to us and to Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Then I go beyond the superficial interpretation of the data that the world presents. I have discovered that there's another story to be tell based on the biblical worldview. That's great. Yeah. And that's the perspective that all Christians need to have when we're presented with data that conflicts with what the Bible says. Right. The Bible is the word of the one who knows all things. It will always be superior to any other data. We take uh, letters and, and emails from people and... Um, Sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're not. And uh, this is uh, one that's uh, trying to challenge us here. We've titled the, uh, the article Evidence and Evolutionary Bias. And uh, this is from John H. from the UK. And he was writing in response uh, to our Question Evolution campaign we had out a little while ago, just uh, you know, showing people that uh, 
what evolutionists are saying have huge holes in them. Yeah, and yeah. here's some some ways well, that they question 15, 15 questions that they uh, could a- ask. Yeah, right. Yeah, 15, 15 questions evolutionists can't uh, can't answer. So he starts off a little sarcastically. He said, "Well, thanks for the best laugh I've had in months." And uh, our Dr. Don okay. Batten uh, responded, "That's nice, but there's a saying that he who laughs last laughs." the loudest. (laughs) And uh, John continued, I know I won't be able to change your views as your mind is clearly made up, fixed, closed to the ongoing process of evidence-based reasoning that is what scientists rely upon. So Dr. Don Batten, being a PhD scientist, said, (laughs) I probably shouldn't bother to reply to you because clearly your mind is made up too. But I guess it's only the people you disagree with who are opinionated, obstinate, philosophically based, not open to evidence, etc. And then he put a little smiley face there. Uh, He said, please see this admission which shows that your high priest scientists are not as objective as you think. And uh, he listed uh, a couple of articles there, amazing admission, uh, blinkered thinkers, how materialism harms science. So if you want to check that, that out, you can, uh, you can look those, those links yeah, up. So obviously there's articles already dealing with this on the website. Right. Uh, then, then John from the UK continues, what I would point out is that just asking questions doesn't prove your position. He's responded to these 15 questions for evolutionists. Yeah. And, and our response, Dr. Batten's response was, nowhere did we suggest that asking questions about evolution pr- proves our position. But did you bother to look at the rest of the creation.com website? There are over 10,000 freely available articles that provide plenty of evidence for our position. Mm-hmm. And then it goes back to, this is what, uh, what John wrote in, you have, uh, you have to provide more credible and likely answers, not just what else could it possibly be other than God type questions. Yep. Now, note that, uh, and, and this is the response from Dr. Batten, note that when it comes to the origin of things, there are three possibilities. They always existed. This can be ruled out for the origin of life and species, but also the universe. See who created God. There's a great article, and you just do a search on that, creation.com, yep. who created God. Uh, a big question for many people. Yep. Number two, they made themselves. Number three, they were created. So there's three possibilities. Yep. That leaves two possibilities. Evolution is the materialist myth about how things made themselves. If the materialist explanation of origins is shown to be inadequate, then that leads creation. Right. Creationists did not invent this line of reasoning. Evolutionists have been using it since Darwin. The modern-day hero of God-haters, uh, Richard Dawkins, uses this argument all the time. For example, he argues that the human eye is badly designed, so therefore it could not have been created by an omnipotent creator. It must have evolved. The details are somehow sidestepped here, Dr. Batten has in brackets. Yeah. Of course, Dawkins is wrong about the eye being badly designed, <laughs> so his argument falls flat. And there's, again, articles that are linked there in this text. That's right. I've heard this before from, uh, from skeptics. You know, well, yeah. it's, maybe it's something else other than creation of evolution. Well, just study logic. The law of excluded middle says it's got to be either this or that. There's only two explanations for yeah. the origin of something. Yeah. Right? Uh, and then he finished, an entity you called God maybe did make the whole process start, but not a... Not one single piece of independently verifiable evidence supports that assertion. It's simply something you choose to believe. So Don just said, well, this statement reveals either your ignorance or your bias. See, for example, the article above, Who Created God? And uh, you also need to think about uh, just how rational it is to believe in, in incredible miracles happening with no cause, which is the sad position of an atheist. So anyway, uh, check that, uh, that article out for more. Uh, we get this type of feedback here and there. But uh, anyway. I think Don did a good job dealing with it. Yes, yeah. Creation Magazine, you can view a free copy online, creation.com slash freemag. We'll see you next week. 
Today's episode was originally formatted for broadcast TV and is available online at the links in the podcast show notes. Both are produced by Creation Ministries International, publishers of Creation Magazine. For more information for the accuracy of the Bible, visit creation.com. You can also donate to the ministry at creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.